I'm guessing many of you were perplexed if you watched the video update a couple of weeks ago or if you're just realizing this now that we're about to start a sermon series on the book of Leviticus. Really? <laughs> when I told one of my children that this is where we were headed a couple of months ago, she contorted her face and asked with a small hint of contempt in her voice, and if not contempt, then at least exasperation, really? Why? Like, Dad, are you serious? Uh, and her response obviously isn't atypical. Leviticus is synonymous with archaic and out of touch. Jeffrey Harper, an Irish Old Testament scholar who teaches in Australia, has spent substantial time teaching Leviticus. And when he begins classes on Leviticus, he asks the students to come up with the adjective that they would use to describe this book. And he says invariably the two most common that come up are boring and irrelevant. He also accurately observes that the only time most of us read the book of Leviticus is when we are committed to reading the Bible through in one year. <laughs> we find it confusing, dry, distant, as it carries on about sacrifice and what kind of food one can eat or not eat and strange rituals and festivals and bodily fluids and more. So why, you might ask, are we going to spend time digging into this book, especially when most of us are just barely making it through life. Life is hard and complicated, and the life of faith in the midst of a materialistic and individualistic age is challenging. All of us can agree with that. And the reality is, is none of us are flourishing as we want to be. We're all struggling in various ways, and we're desperate. Honestly, I hope we come week after week to, to the people of God to gather to worship. We, we come desperate to hear a word from the Lord for our weary souls. As we come Sunday after Sunday, we, we long for God to speak as we pray together and sing together and confess our sins together and open God's word together. So if that's what we need, why then would we come to spend time in Leviticus? Jeffrey Harper's preferred adjective for this book is underappreciated. Underappreciated. And I hope as a result of this series that we will all come to agree that that is correct. I want all of us to walk out of this place every Sunday, whatever book of the Bible we might be opening, having heard the word from God that addresses our weary souls. We need this. But my contention is that this can happen in profound ways as we engage in the book of Leviticus. This is God's word, after all. And this is the central book of the Pentateuch, or the Torah, or the five books of Moses, the foundation of the scriptures for the Jewish people, and still the foundation of the scriptures for us as followers of Jesus today. The Old Testament points us to Jesus through and through. It narrates the true story of God's dealing with his world and his people. And this is our story, what's told here in the Old Testament, our true story. Paul declares about the Old Testament in Romans 15 that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Or in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And most, many of you will remember that the resurrected Jesus, when walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, we read that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to the disciples the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So we take up the book of Leviticus with the expectation that here we will find Christ. Here God will address us, granting us an appreciation perhaps in a new and deeper way of his glory, of his holiness, of the work that he's accomplished to create a way for us to be with him on the cross in Jesus. 
and of the subsequent call on all of our lives to be holy as he is holy. That is a refrain throughout the book of Leviticus that Peter quotes to New Testament believers in his first letter. We'll address sacrifice and atonement, communion, holiness, sexuality, justice, time, obedience, blessing, and much more in this series. Leviticus enriches our understanding of the God that we worship, even enriches our understanding of worship. It enriches our understanding of his aims and intentions, of his heart and his character. It's in so many ways, it deepens our appreciation of all that he has done in Jesus. In his highly acclaimed 1979 commentary on this book of the Bible, Gordon Wenham writes this in his introduction about his own digging deep into this book. He said, quote, it came as a surprise to discover how pervasive are Levitical ideas in the New Testament, end quote. R.K. Harrison, in his 1980 InterVarsity Press commentary on Leviticus, writes this, in this book is to be found the basis of Christian faith and doctrine. If these claims are true, and I believe that they are, then I would submit that underappreciated may in fact be the best adjective for the book of Leviticus. Our aim today is to set Leviticus within its broader canonical context so that we can approach this book rightly. And we'll do this in three parts. First, we'll see the reality of the presence of God returning to his people. Then we'll see the problem, secondly, that that reality creates. And then third, lastly, we'll identify the contents of Leviticus as the solution to that problem. Yes, a temporary and symbolic solution, but a solution that points to the permanent and real solution in Jesus Christ. So, I want you to look with me at this book through a wide-angle lens as we begin. We never read the Bible in a vacuum. We read particular books and particular texts always in their context in the Scriptures so that we can understand their aim and their message. So for this reason, we began our reading this morning, not in Leviticus, if you were paying attention, but at the end of the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 40, at the end of verse 33, and we read these words. So Moses finished the work. Well, what work? What work did Moses just finish? The work of building the tabernacle. Well, what's the tabernacle? The Hebrew word translated tabernacle simply means dwelling or abode. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God in the midst of the people of God. And immediately when the work is finished, according to the plans that God had revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, in Exodus 40, verse 34, the next verse, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The word then, which I just read in the ESV, isn't actually in the original Hebrew. The filling of the tabernacle with the glorious presence of God is immediate, complete, signifying that this is what God wanted. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright actually suggests this translation of these two verses. No sooner had Moses finished the work than the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wright continues, it's as if God could not wait, could not wait to be where he wanted, had wanted to be all along in the midst of his people. 
This moment at the end of the book of Exodus says something about God, something that is very, very good news indeed for every one of us. Whether we're here as lifelong Christian disciples or we are nervously coming back to church for the first time, perhaps after COVID or perhaps after just a time of questioning and doubt, or whether we're, we've been dragged here by a family member or a friend and we'd much rather be somewhere else, God, the God of the universe, longs to dwell with his people, with you and with me. This is critical to understanding our approach to Leviticus, and more than that, our approach to life in general. The God of the Bible is the God who longs to dwell with us, longs for us to dwell with him in his presence. Still with our wide-angle lens view here of Leviticus, we can see this moment at the end of Exodus as the resolution to the dramatic tension created by humanity's rebellion and sin in the beginning of the, deal, of the story of God and his creation back in Genesis. We were created, many of you will remember, to be in God's presence in the garden. And there we dwelt with the access to the tree of life and with God walking freely in the Garden of Eden among us. But the consequence of our sin, of our rebellion, was banishment from the Garden east of Eden. So we read in Genesis 3:24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned, away, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. East of Eden... Humanity was banished from the presence of God. Here's how Michael Morales, an Old Testament scholar, describes the condition of humanity at this point. Outside Eden, Adam is now an exile and a wanderer. Having lost the presence of God, humanity has also lost its purpose. The children of Adam now sojourn outside the door of God's dwelling, outside the light of his countenance. This expulsion from the divine presence is the central tragic event that drives the history of redemption, determining and shaping the ensuing biblical narrative. Indeed, he continues, all of the drama of Scripture is found in relation to the singular point of focus, Yahweh's opening up the way for humanity to dwell in his presence once more. The entire book of Exodus, the story of God's great redemption of his people, is focused on the restoration of that presence which brings life. The purpose of God's redemption is to bring us into his life-giving presence. Honestly, most of us, when we read the book of Exodus, which we like more than Leviticus, I think, generally, we love the story of God's deliverance, you know, it's the stuff of children's Bible classes. We love the story of God's deliverance of out of slavery in Egypt, the plagues, the rescue through the Red Sea, God leading them through the wilderness, the manna, God coming down on the, on the mountain of Sinai. But honestly, if we're honest, when we get to chapter 25 in Exodus, most of us start to lose interest. Why? Because that's when God starts to reveal to Moses the detailed instructions for the building of the tabernacle and its furnishings. But I want you to recognize that this is actually the climax of the book of Exodus. And it's why Exodus 25 all the way to 40 are spent on this with one little narrative in 32 to 34. But this is the climax of Exodus. God is restoring his presence to his people. 
This is how God describes his purposes in the building of the tabernacle to Moses while he's on the mountaintop in Exodus 29, verses 43 to 46. God says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Why did he rescue us out of Egypt? That I might dwell among them. He intends to dwell among his people. And you might say, well, of course, he's already come to be with his people in one sense. I mean, he was at the burning bush in Exodus 3 with Moses. He was at the summit of Mount Sinai communicating to Moses and shocking the people down below by his glorious presence. But now, this would be a greater gift. God would dwell among, in the center of his people. Again, back to Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This for Israel and then through Israel to the world was the restoration of the presence of God among humanity. This was a return to Eden. Reading this as a return to Eden, actually, is reinforced by the fact that the tabernacle was actually a model of Eden. Consider these points. Both Eden and the tabernacle are oriented to the east. Both contained a tree of life, the tree of life in Eden, and the menorah, the lampstand, in the holy place, in their tabernacle, which was in the shape of an almond tree with blossoms. Both were guarded by the cherubim. Remember the cherubim standing guard of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Well, cherubim are embroidered in the curtains that make up the tabernacle and embroidered on the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, guarding the presence of God. Not only was the tabernacle a model of Eden, but it was also a model of the cosmos. In fact, the Hebrew words in Exodus 40, 33, so Moses finished the work, are words that clearly allude to Genesis 2, 1 to 3, where we read that God finished his work in creation. Thus, the tabernacle is, in a sense, a new creation, a return to Eden, in which God dwells. And at the same time, the tabernacle is a pointer toward a future new creation in which God will dwell and flood his world. God, of course, takes a giant step toward that in, at the end of Exodus, by his glory filling the tabernacle. He takes a, an exponentially larger step in this direction when Jesus, as we read in John 1:14, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this future will finally be achieved at the end of time when Jesus returns. And remember that loud voice that cries out in Revelation 21, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And he will be, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is good news. God longs to dwell with his people. But this creates a problem as we move to our second point. And it's this problem that Leviticus actually exists to answer. For God is holy 
He is unadulterated life, moral perfection, completely other than his creation. Yet we, his creatures, are rebellious, unholy, sinful, and tainted by death. The presence of God is exactly what we need. It is what we long for. But the presence of the holy God is inherently dangerous to sinners like us. What do we mean by dangerous? All of you know when you go to get gas at the gas station, there are a bunch of no smoking signs plastered everywhere. Why? Because any open flame, even a spark, could ignite the fuel and cause real damage. That's a bit of what we mean here. The presence of the Holy Lord of glory, who is morally pure and completely other, is a threat to that which is unholy, sinful, and impure. And lest you think this is only a reality in the Old Testament, hear the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, quoting Deuteronomy 4, 24, which say, For our God is a consuming fire. He is holy, and in his holiness he is dangerous. This problem actually can possibly be observed in Exodus 40 in our text, in part at least, by the fact that Moses, even Moses, we read in verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter. The presence of the Holy Lord of glory, while being exactly what we need and what we long for, is dangerous for his wayward people. And we see that in part here in Exodus 40. We see it throughout the book of Exodus. Let me offer two examples where this point is illustrated. One is at the base or at Mount Sinai, when Moses goes up the mountain. The Lord says to Moses in Exodus 19, 21, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Then after that encounter uh, in Exodus 20, the people, we read, were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off, and they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us, and, and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. They understood the danger of God's holiness among them as sinners. Second place we see this in the book is in the golden calf episode in Exodus 32 to 34, where this is, I mean, this is an unbelievable narrative. I wish we had more time to dig into it. But as the covenant is being ratified, as God is creating, giving instructions for how he's going to dwell among his people, what are his people doing down below with Aaron? They're building and making a golden calf. They're violating the first, second, and third commandments that God had just given to Moses on the mountaintop. It's an awful moment. And God says to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 3, Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. It's a mercy, God is saying. Look, go ahead to the promised land, but I'm not going to go. Look at how awful you all have been. I don't want to be among you, lest I consume you in my holiness along the way. One just comment on this that I, I don't want to skip over without saying is Moses' response is brilliant. You remember what Moses says? God, we don't want the land without your presence. We need you to go with us. 
to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation, to shine your light into this world. What else makes us distinct, Lord, than your presence dwelling in our midst? We don't want the land. Remember in Hebrews, Moses did not consider the reproaches of Christ of greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. He understood that outside of the presence of God, we are bankrupt. Doesn't matter if we have a land flowing with milk and honey, if our bank accounts are full, if our lives are worldly, in a worldly sense, secure. Without the presence of God, we have nothing. And the Lord relents to Moses' sacrificial and gracious mediation in that moment. It shows us so much about Jesus, but that's for another time. We do struggle, don't we, with this idea of the dangerousness of God to his people as, his, as the holy God? I mean, what about the father's embrace of the younger son in the, in the story of the prodigal that we looked at for the last few weeks in Luke 15? I mean, the reality is, is we must hold these biblical pictures of God together. God is, in fact, determined to embrace and pursue the ungodly, but his holiness is dangerous and remains that way to the very ones that he embraces. The danger, I should say, is not only manifest in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Consider Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Consider the fact that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says many of you are weak and ill. In fact, some have died in Corinth because you were not discerning of the body when you partook of the Lord's supper. So we wrestle and we struggle to comprehend this reality. One of the reasons we so desperately need a healthy diet of the Old Testament in the church and the people of God is to remember the holiness and purity and majesty and wonder and awe of God that, that, that produces a natural response of fear before such a great being. We also struggle with this because we tend to minimalize, uh, have a, a minimal view of, of sin, an anemic view of, of sin. We think of sin as just something we can't avoid. It's something we can't help. It's easily excused or explained away. It only impacts us on the horizontal level. But actually, sin is always devastating, and most of all, devastating in our relationship to the living and holy God. Sin causes separation and provokes God's just and holy wrath. Sin costs the life of the Son of God. It is always a big deal. And we'll see that more and more as we study Leviticus. So this danger is the problem. And this raises the question, how then can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? That is the question that the contents of the book of Leviticus set out to answer. The first word in Hebrew in this book, which is the Hebrew title for this book, is, and he called. In English, we call it Leviticus, taking after the Latin Vulgate, which is also taking after the Septuagint, could be taken to mean about priestly laws or laws about the offerings, which were administered by the Levites. But I like that first word in Hebrew, and he called. Leviticus 1, 1 and 2. And actually, the English kind of brings the Hebrew, which is a little clumsy, together and says, the Lord called Moses. It's actually, and he called Moses, and the Lord spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them. 85% of the book of Leviticus is direct divine address to the people of God. God speaking from the tabernacle. The location of this book is at Sinai, where the people arrive at Sinai in Exodus 19, and they remain there until Numbers chapter 10. 
And this divine address, which is the book of Leviticus, is a tremendous act of grace. A tremendous act of grace. The sacrifices, chapters 1 through 7, the priesthood, including the high priest Aaron of chapters 8 through 10, the purity laws of chapters 11 through 15, the day of atonement ritual in chapter 16, and the instruction about growth and practical holiness as the people of God in chapters 17 through 26. All of this is the gift of a gracious God to his people to enable sinners to dwell safely in his holy presence. In the words of Morales, quote, the primary theme and theology of Leviticus and of the Pentateuch as a whole is Yahweh's opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. Leviticus is about reconciliation between God and humanity through the temporary and symbolic means of the tabernacle cultus. And here's what this means. It means that the laws and rituals and sacrifices that often try our patience are never an end in themselves, nor are the ritual purity and holiness that they produce in those who keep them. Rather, all of this, all of this is a means to the end of safely dwelling in the presence of a holy God and mitigating the danger that that holy God's presence brings to sinners. It's a gift of grace. God longs to dwell with his people, and he speaks in the book of Leviticus from the tabernacle to help us understand the way that we can dwell in his presence. Eden restored. This way is, of course, in the words of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, but a shadow of the good things to come. For, of course, in and through Jesus, God has come to dwell among his people. God has reconciled his people to himself in an entirely new and more complete way. Thanks be to God. And yet... Together, as we dive into the consideration of this shadow, we will find that it helps us to comprehend the real thing at a deeper level. And well, it will help us to comprehend the heart of God. We'll find, I trust, that it helps us to appreciate just how amazing it is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that He has made a way through His own blood for sinners like us to be in the presence of the Holy Lord of glory by His Spirit. For here in Leviticus, as we saw Harrison writing in his 1980 commentary, is found the basis of Christian faith and doctrine. Our, expectation, our exploration of this basis will help us to live in response to the God of grace more fully in our lives. God with us, God with his people, that is his aim, his heart, and he has made a way, yes, a temporary and symbolic way in Leviticus, but a real and permanent way in Jesus to whom Leviticus points. And as we close, I want to make the point that the reality is that whether we know it or not, we long for the presence of God. Father Smith is a Catholic priest who is the protagonist in the Scottish writer Bruce Marshall's 1945 novel entitled The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. And Father Smith observes at one point in the story to a young woman that has rejected 
her Christian faith and embraced a worldly way of life. Quote, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. All our desires, all our desires are simply a manifestation of our deepest desire for the presence of God, which brings life. The one who has set eternity in our hearts. We cannot find rest or satisfaction or a sense of peace apart or any of those things from the things in this world. Try as we might, nothing will suffice. And we try hard and we innovate and we try the same stuff over and over again with different forms and different seasonings. Nothing will suffice but the presence of God. One of C.S. Lewis's well-known quotes from mere Christianity is worth repeating. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfa satisfaction for those desires exists. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. We desire God. We've been invited in. We say with the, the psalmist, my heart thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The great news of the scriptures is that God longs to dwell with his people and that he's opened up a way. The Holy Lord of glory, in spite of our sin, has come to us long ago by dwelling in the tabernacle and not quite as long ago by dwelling in the flesh of Jesus. He's mitigated the dangers and made a way for sinners like us to be purified and sanctified, that we might enjoy his presence now and for all of eternity. This is the good news of Leviticus that points to the even greater news of Jesus. God's glory filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and from it he called out with words of grace that would enable his people to dwell with him. Subsequently, his glory radiated through the man Jesus, his son, and he made a way, a new, incorruptible, unbreakable, everlasting way for sinners like us to dwell in his presence now and for all eternity. God with us. Thanks be to God for his extravagant, amazing, awesome grace. Let's pray. We thank you, O oh God, that you are a God who dwells and longs to dwell with his people. We thank you for filling the tabernacle long ago at Mount Sinai. More than that, we thank you for filling our world with your glory through your Son coming to us, tabernacling among us with your very presence in the flesh. Lord, we pray that we could cry out with the words of Scripture over and over again, that whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For me, it is good to be near God. Oh, thank you that you are near. Grant us attentiveness to your presence, that we might reflect that presence to the world that you love. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.